HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Oh, yes, that's right. It's Monday. It's 12 o'clock, and it's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. This is the Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we have a very, very, very special program for you. I am so delighted to tell you that I have secured the interest of one Dr. Kathleen Merrigan, who was the former Undersecretary of Agriculture in the first Obama uh, administration. So um, she will be joining me in just a few minutes. I'm really excited to talk to her, especially in the wake of our tragic election results, which I still, for some reason, have some weird hope is going to suddenly go away. I just, I don't know how to explain it, but something says to me, this cannot possibly be real. This man cannot possibly become the leader of the free world. And yet, at the same time, I am deeply pessimistic. But to carry on with joys and sorrows, uh, there was something really interesting today. I usually put this together on Monday mornings before I come into the studio and sometimes I collect items over the week, but today was because I was busy. I'm catering and eh, I was busy. So today I left it until Monday. And by the way, if you have any joys and sorrows or things you think would be fun to add to this broadcast, please feel free to send them to my show page at uh, Heritage Radio Network or to my Facebook page, What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights with Katie Kiefer. Either one of those things. I do check them quite often and I would love to hear from you. Um, in fact, I had a wonderful conversation with one of my listeners, Benjamin, I won't say his last name about um, who is worse, Cargill or other <laughs> companies? Or rather, the question was like, is Cargill good or bad? Like everything else, shades of gray, my friends, shades of gray. But here's a joy. There is something called the IPES newsletter. I'm telling you this because I think everyone should be subscribing to it. It's the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food. And it includes Olivier de Schuter, who was the... Um, Attaché attached to sustainability at the UN for many, many years and now runs this foundation. And then there are a lot of other very important, forward-thinking, progressive-minded food advocates on his panel of experts. They are from all over the world. It is an international panel. And they have 
many, many, many events going on simultaneously, not simultaneously, but within sort of every month there is something, five or six different things that are going on. And so, first of all, I want to point to you that this this uh, entity exists. It is, again, it's called the IPES. Uh, you can subscribe to their newsletter. It's free and it's really worth it. And second, uh, when I was reading the newsletter today, I was so struck by the fact that all over Western Europe, Africa, Mexico, Canada, um, where else did I see this? India. Uh, there are talks and efforts that combine stakeholders, including farmers or agricultural experts, uh, policy, government policy wonks, the EU, uh, um, whatever that, you know, they haven't, anyway, it doesn't matter. But the point is, is that all of these people come together on a regular basis to talk about issues such as agroecology, crop diversity, soil health. They're basically remapping their agricultural and food systems. You know, how can they make food more healthy? How can they encourage to eat, eat people to eat better? This is even in the EU where people eat pretty well already. Um, it's just, it was just amazing to me how much activity is going on around this. And I was totally struck by the complete and t- absence of American entities of any type. This is an international body and there are no American players in this scene. We are not interested in revamping our food system for reasons which obviously we cover pretty extensively on this show and many others on the, on the Heritage Radio Network. But the point is, is that this, everybody else is like on board this train and somehow the U.S., we just can't get it going. And it really breaks my heart because these other countries are going to be light years ahead of us in terms of public health, in terms of soil health, in terms of their agroecological efforts. And we are going to be left in the dust and literally in a dust bowl. So anyway, that that's, that's both a joy and a sorrow, a joy because it's a great newsletter and a sorrow because we don't participate, but it's something that we can change. Um, my second point of, of uh, interest today, I promise to stop saying ah, uh, um, ah, uh, um. When I listen to my broadcasts, I just want to cringe and die. Um. <laughs> but uh, in the Huffington Post today, Robert Reich, who is professor of public policy at UC Berkeley and also a, a you know, multi, a multi-published author and a frequent columnist at HuffPost. He made this, he made a, he had a very interesting article that connected the dots between taxes and better standards of living. And he drew this distinction between Kansas, the state of Kansas. And you, those of you who listen regularly know that that's one of my favorite hobby horses because of that complete blowhard and fool who runs the state. One governor, Sam Brownback, who has bought into the trickle-down theory of economics as espoused by Arthur Laffer back in the Reagan administration. And by the way, we can really trace so many of the problems in our food system and in our diplomacy right back to the Reagan administration. It's just, it blows my mind, you know, as history expands, as time expands between now and the Reagan administration, all of those, so many of those initiatives that were brought in under the Reagan administration have come home to roost in the most foul of ways. But anyway, we won't talk about that. But trickle-down being one of the major ones. So Kansas and Texas have zero or less than zero percent growth. Meanwhile, California, which is one of the highest taxed and most highly regulated states in the country, is booming. It's booming. Kansas and Texas, they're bust. 
literally bust. Texas, because they failed to diversify their economy beyond the oil industry, and Kansas because of the aforementioned fool who runs their show. Um, anyway, the, the article c- concludes with economic success, this is a quote, economic success depends on tax revenues that go into public investments and regulations that protect the environment and public health, and true economic success results in high wages. Okay, case closed. Republican economics don't work. We need to get rid of them. And uh, I guess lastly here, no, not quite. Carl Bernstein, those of you who remember Watergate, and there's probably plenty of you young folks out there who don't, but there it was sort of Woodward and Bernstein. Remember those guys? Okay, so Carl Bernstein, the other half of that famous duo who broke the Watergate story, uh, has pronounced Trump even more of a liar than Nixon. And nowadays, I'm starting to think Nixon looks great. <laughs> Kills me to say that, but he really, he's like, he brought us the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, He opened up China for better or worse. And those two signature achievements of Richard Milhouse Nixon's are now in serious jeopardy as Trump trashes detente with China, right, left and center, whether it's declaring a trade war, whether it's going behind the back of the State Department and and making contact with Taiwan. In any case, the Gropenfuhrer is about to, to kill both the Chinese in terms of our trading partner and the EPA, because, well, I think we know who he's um, selected for the head of the EPA. It's just tragic, tragic for the country. And lastly, something I want to bring to your attention, this is a joy. The Times today had the most gorgeous interactive map on water, global water. So if you go to the page in the Times, uh, the name of the article is called Mapping Three Decades of Global Water Change, and it shows the rise and fall of rivers, lakes, and streams. It's fascinating, and it's all over the world, and it's done with help from Google Maps. And I just can't tell you how much time I spent on this this morning and how much time you will, too, I promise. Anyway, it's, it's a really interesting piece of reporting and a very interesting visual to accompany it. So um, have a look at that. And with that, we will conclude this segment of the program, Joyce and Soros. We will go to our sponsor drop and we will be right back with the former Undersecretary of Agriculture, Dr. Kathleen Merrigan. So stay tuned, folks. Good show up. And this one's called Relax. It's just the end of the world by Taxstar. We'll be right back. New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov.
This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are broadcasting uh, from the Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And it's my very great pleasure to introduce my guest today. Dr. Kathleen Merrigan is Executive Director of Sustainability at the George Washington University, where she leads the GW Sustainability Collaborative, the GW Food Institute, and serves as a professor of public policy. She also serves as co-chair for Agri, which is a group that I, um, when they first started, I interviewed them way back, way back when, literally within months, this is seven, eight years ago. Um, she is a board director for the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture and Food Corps, a member of the Harvard Pilgrim Healthy Food Fund Advisory Committee, a senior advisor at the Kendall Foundation and steering committee member of the Council of Environmental Deans and Directors of the National Council for Science and the Environment and the United Nations Environmental Program, led initiative TEEB for Agriculture and Food. From, I'm sorry to keep going, but this woman's CV is just like so incredible. From 2009, <laughs> Dr. Merrigan, you're just, I mean, you just put us all to shame. From 2009 to 2013, Dr. Merrigan was Deputy Secretary and Chief Operating Officer of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, a $150 billion, 110,000 employee institution. Oh my God. Well, welcome to the program. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. I'm glad to be with you. Well, I'm just so pleased that you've joined me, and especially at this kind of crucial, shall we say, even pivotal moment in our country's history. Um, Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your work as Director of Sustainability at GWU? And I also know, as my spies have informed me, that you are working right now on an organic labeling initiative. So can we talk (laughs) about those two things, and then we'll move on? Sure. So um, the lovely thing about being at a university is you sort of decide yourself what you want to do. I teach a course in the spring called The Sustainable Plate. How do we um, shift diets, not just here in the United States, but globally, um, to a place where we can produce food sustainably? And in the fall, I teach a course on climate change policy. Mm-hmm. My students are a little shell-shocked from the election, trying to figure out what um, the path forward is uh, right now. And then I um, help organize faculty and um, variety of staff in various kinds of research. We're working right now with USDA's Agricultural Marketing Service, organizing a conference a public conference that people can come to free of charge uh, April 3rd and 4th next year on figuring out how we know investments in local and regional food systems have impact, really Mm. sort of talking about metrics and building the evidence base to say, hey, it does make sense for the government to make these kinds of investments because they create jobs, um, increase farm farmer income, what have you. So uh, lots of things on the agenda. I could go on and on, but I'm sure that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my jaw's already on the floor, so what can I tell you now? (laughs) Um, In in terms of the labeling, um, I'm I'm trying to launch a project really looking at uh, transition to organic label. There's starting to be a number of labels out there. People can't say transition to organic on a a product because use of the word organic is dictated by law, the law that we wrote in 1990, the Organic Mm -hmm. Foods Production Act. But there are 
labels that say transition. Um, probably the most notable one is by uh, California Certified Organic Farmers. And what I'm seeing now is that when you have multiple standards come out, it's very confusing in the marketplace, and particularly for uh, manufacturers of multi-ingredient product. Do I go with this standard or that standard? How do I communicate it to consumers? And right now, from all of my friends in um, the larger-scale organic industry, they're telling me they have to go overseas to get their organic product. You know, if I'm a, wow. a, a sizable poultry producer, I'm getting my feed from the Ukraine. If I'm a big manufacturer somewhere like General Mills, I've got product coming in from a lot of different countries. And we have a pipeline problem here in this country where we are not growing organic farmers um, quickly enough to meet the growing demand in the organic marketplace. And so having a transition label will help that pipeline because when farmers go, go cold turkey on uh, chemical inputs, those first few years are tough, and mm -hmm. if they're not accessing a premium that tends to come along with an organic product, that's, uh, that's a survival um, period um, that's really tough, and not everyone makes it. So if we had a mm -hmm. transition label, that might help. Hmm. Yes. I guess it might. <laughs> I'd have to think about that. I mean, that's an interesting problem to have because you do want farmers to be able to access, uh, you know, funding to help them make the transition. But at the same time, it's a three to five year period, right? Isn't that a pretty long time to transition into organic base? It's, it's three years. And even when you get outside of that three years, you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily achieving the yields that you will right. over a longer term when you build the soil. But, but to your point, it is a good problem to have. What it says is that organic is thriving in this country, that no one in um, the market space sees that changing in any way, and everyone's looking for more and more sources. So particularly for young people who are looking to go into farming, I always say organic can be a viable option, particularly in fruits and vegetables, because you can do that on small acreage and um, perhaps uh, make ends meet as you um, advance in your experience right. and income, then you might grow bigger, you might do different things, but as an entree point, it's somewhat attractive. Oh, I think very much so. I think a lot of young farmers are definitely heading in that direction. I mean, certainly in livestock agriculture, just because the, the industrial model of agriculture, of livestock agriculture is so distasteful to most people, especially young people getting into the business now, I think. Um, I wanted to ask you just quickly, when you were talking about Director of Sustainability and you were saying that your group organizes conferences and, and different looks at different ways to improve the food system, and I, I do this segment, which you probably didn't hear, um, called Joys and Sorrows, and I was I was ranting and raving about how great Olivier de Schuter's organization, IPES, the, the International Panel of Experts on Sustainability. What, and I was saying, like, all of these different countries are, are organizing these very serious conferences and meeting with 
government stakeholders and manufacturers and so forth about improving the food system, whether it's from the point of view of public health, from the point of view of agroecology, soil health, etc. And yet we don't seem to be able to do that so much in this country. And I wondered if you could... Um, you know, just sort of uh, comment on that. Like, do you see that there is the same kind of coming together as there might be in Western Europe, for example, around working on a food system? Because I don't see that, but you are much more in the know, obviously, or you wouldn't be on this program. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because I actually think that there's so many conferences and that's the thing about a lot of the sustainability stuff. What Sometimes it doesn't happen on a national level, but it's more regional, some of these conferences. But just that one conference I mentioned that we're hosting Mm -hmm. in April, I come to find out that there's a great conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts, where they're expecting five to 600 people that very same week looking at farm-to-institution efforts. Right. And how do we improve on that? So. You know, I find that a lot of these conferences are overlapping or colliding because Mm -hmm. there is so much interest. Mm -hmm. There's a lull right now in terms of dealing with the federal government because we're, you know, we're doing a changing of the guard. Um, But, you know, after the next few months, I think people are going to want to try to come to town and meet with government officials. And there is already movement. on a, a next farm bill, it's due to be uh, written and passed in 2018. There are some people who are saying that the situation in the dairy industry is dire enough and cotton dire enough that they want to accelerate that timeline. Not likely given a new Congress and a new mm-hmm. executive branch, but but clearly um, a lot of reason to make sure that 20 that 2018 deadline is met. So people are going to be coming to town. There are going to be different conferences related to that. I'm also joining with Food Tank on uh, on February, excuse me, uh, yeah, February 2nd uh-huh. to host a summit here at George Washington University. It's going to be live streamed. So everybody can watch it from our Food Institute website and from Food Takes website. And we're really going to use that as an opportunity to bring in, we'll invite the new Secretary of Agriculture, the new deputy, if the new deputy has been named. Um, uh, and we will be talking about commodity programs and crop insurance and mm-hmm. some of those core issues in a farm bill and think about ways that we might want to um shift the conversation. Yeah. I think we I think we definitely want to shift the conversation. As a matter of fact, I have a question here which I might as well bring to you. <clears throat> Unfortunately, this is like kind of a crazy the way this is all printed out is a little bit crazy. Oh, so I have interviewed Ricardo Salvador numerous times. I'm sure you know him. He's the the food policy expert for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Um, and Recently, he made the point that the way we reward or incentivize farmers currently does not encourage them particularly to think sustainably. This is speaking to you, to your conversation about the farm bill just now. In other words, we reward them through subsidies or crop insurance payments to grow one crop such as corn, but we do not reward them for diversifying their planting. And instead, we expect them to be, you know, do the sustainable thing for free. So that's a policy issue. Now, do you imagine that in the upcoming farm bill, uh, that we are going to be able to alter that policy to say incentivize um, farmers to uh, 
diversify their crop patterns, say they're just into the corn, soy, alfalfa, um, you know, triangle. What what kinds of things in the farm bill do you anticipate that would be able to help <clears throat> change that thinking so that farmers are supported through that sort of difficult, as we talked about in organic farming, same thing with anybody who's changing their farming model. They need some financial supports to get them sort of over the hump until it becomes lucrative. What, what do you think is, is the likelihood of something like that happening under this new administration, which seems dismal at best in terms of well, progressive it, thinking? It, yeah, it's hard to say. Um, when Vice President-elect Pence was a member of Congress during the 2008 Farm Bill deliberations, mm-hmm. he voted against the Farm Bill 16 times. In other words, every opportunity that was presented to him, mm-hmm. um, because there are a lot of procedural votes and all of that. Yeah. Uh, and um, different people who have been in the mix as potential new leaders at USDA have been um, some outspoken uh, um, um, opponents of commodity programs. So who knows what this next um, process could be. It could be really about uh, getting rid of commodity support altogether as opposed to shifting it this way and that way. I can't predict right now until we know some more about those leadership decisions. I I do know over the last several years, um, a big effort in the Obama administration was to take away some of the disincentives that existed to crop diversification. Um, crop insurance, for example, I know I was very involved with this when I was there. If you're a mixed vegetable grower, like from my part of the world in western Massachusetts, you might be growing, you know, 20, 20 to 20 to 30 different kinds of crops between the fruits and vegetables on your small diversified farm. Right. And yet the crop insurance form, when you had a fill-in stuff or the loan form when you're doing the looking for a loan from the Farm Service Agency, might have space to put four crops. So it, it was. It, it wasn't necessarily law, but it was dictated by what the the dominant production frame was, and so we had to change a lot of that. And when you do crop insurance, you need a lot of underlying studies so that they can do the risk charts and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, we we started to put more money into cover crops and help um, farmers do more in cover cropping. So I would say um, the last few years we've removed a lot of the disincentives, but we haven't gotten to that era that you're describing and and, um, asking about an incentive where you really are financially incenting farmers to do certain things. One area that is under discussion by a lot of groups is a clearer tie between Um, the issuance of crop insurance, which is heavily subsidized by the federal government, Mm -hmm. um, to uh, more and more conservation requirements. We took out, um, we did add uh, a requirement that you have to be in compliance with um, a certain conservation uh, um, goal of USDA, so you can't be you know, in violation of wetland stuff or uh-huh. busting out 
thawed in certain ways. But that's just the tip of the iceberg in some people's minds. So that might be on the agenda going forward. We'll see. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about some of your signature programs for a second, because I mean, you know, this is eight years ago is ancient history for many people. And you were uh, the lead architect of both um, Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign, as well as um, the Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food initiative. Can you talk a little bit about those programs and what they accomplished? And let's, you know, and then wind up by saying what you think will happen to them now that we have a new administration. So the Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food initiative was an effort to get across USDA's agencies and then in other federal agencies as well, um, more understanding of the opportunity in local and regional agriculture, making investments in local and regional agriculture. Um, and uh, it was highly successful. Um, for me, it was about local regional, but it was also about uh, demystifying government. You oftentimes hear about how certain programs or agencies are captured by certain interest groups. Mm-hmm. And that is certainly a dominant thesis in the literature, there's a little bit of conspiracy to it. Part of it for me is it's just really difficult to know what USDA does because it's so big and so complex. I went to the airport one day and I was um, looking in my purse for my ID and I, I wasn't retrieving it right away. So in the short term, I showed the TSA agent my USDA badge and he said, oh, you pay our my my payroll, my payroll comes from you. And I was like, oh, no, you are, you're TSA. That's part of Homeland Security. And I'm at USC. I'm kind of giving them a schooling because right. I'm a smarty pants. And then I find out after <laughs> I come back from my trip that USDA at that time was actually doing 60% of the federal payroll down in a finance center that oh we had in God. New Orleans. I'm the chief operating officer of the department, and I didn't know that. Wow. So how is man on the street supposed to know about these yeah. gazillion programs that USDA has with all their different requirements and deadlines, et cetera? So part of the goal of Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food was transparency. And anyone can go to the website now and get on a geospatial mapping tool. They can put in their um, zip code. They can say a state. They can say, oh, I want to see everything that is available for um, financial support for commercial kitchens. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of different ways you can search it and find out all of that information. Um, so it was about opening USDA's doors wider to new constituencies uh-huh. and saying, we're here to help. Wow. Um, lots of fun. What will happen to that? Um, I don't know, but I think that hearts and minds were changed across a lot of the career uh, staff at USDA when they understood what we were talking about. And even Congress, there were a couple of floor votes um, in the House against the initiative. But now I think more and more um, congressional people on both sides of the aisle understand that this is really about job creation, bringing in young people into American agriculture when we need to transition our working lands, and reconnecting rural and urban people um, about where foods produce, who produces it, and why it's important. On the Let's Move initiative, I was one of several architects of that. A lot of fun to work with our first lady who 
is as good as she seems in, <laughs> on television in real life. She's Aww. just outstanding. Yeah. Really flawless in many ways. Um, but one of my big contributions was coming from Tufts University, where I'd been at the School of Nutrition Science and Policy, understanding that issues around hunger and obesity are really complex. And, huh. and yet they stem from the same root cause, and that's lack of access to good, healthy food. Mm. And so one of the things I really drove home in those early days was let's not have the First Lady choose between a focus on hunger or a focus on obesity because it's the same, it's the same work. Right. And I think we saw that over course of the years. We got to work on My Plate, the new food icon, yep. um, which simplified and replaced the uh, Food Guide Pyramid. And we worked on the hung Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, which changed the nature of school meals. Um, yeah. We did a lot of fun things with um, sports heroes and trying to get to younger generations. Um, we did a whole lot around farm to school, uh, yeah. increasing locally grown in the schools, and school gardens as right. a real experiment, uh, experiential learning uh, process that changes children's consumption patterns. So lots of fun getting into the big house, as we call the White House here in town, <laughs> and working with the First Lady. Did you have any metrics by which you were able to, to measure the success of the of those various programs in the Let's Move initiative? Because that's had, you know, that's had, what, about six years to really kind of percolate through in terms of most of the major aspects of that program. What, what are you seeing in terms of the way, um, in terms of, say, for instance, childhood obesity? Is that decreasing? Do you see um, more more kids, are you able to measure more kids eating fresh fruits and vegetables than uh, previously? What's how, how are you able to measure the success of that program? Because we hear a lot about it, but it's difficult to say. I mean, you know, you'd want to you'd want your congressional representative to be able to go in and say, yes, I think we need to continue to fund this initiative because. So, do they yeah. have those tools that they can use to um, promote this within their own, you know, con their own into congressional leadership? So, you know, it's hard to say what is the, you know, how much is causative. Certainly the First Lady used the bully pulpit exceedingly well. Yeah. Um, we know that, and I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but the latest obesity numbers are showing a, a childhood obesity, a very slight decline. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, the last couple of years we saw a plateauing. And that's after years of um, it just going up and up. So right. can we contribute that to Let's Move? Well, certainly Let's Move and the First Lady um, are a part of that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's hard to measure um, exactly. Yeah, I agree. What to what. But I do believe that um, there's a lot of reason to continue investment in uh, battling obesity, just the health care costs alone are pretty stunning. And as we've heard on the news the last couple of weeks, life expectancy mm -hmm. is uh, has gone down for the first time. And, you know, yeah. we are, as a country are, are really needing to cope with obesity. And the best way to deal with it is when children are um, forming their eating habits. Right. Uh, 
there are other things that, you know, people are doing independently. Even before I arrived in Washington to be the deputy secretary and to work with the First Lady, uh, I had one of my doctoral students, uh, Michelle Markinson, um, uh, do work on evaluating uh, garden-based learning intervention. And her work and an article that we published together found that children who were engaged in garden-based learning not only were more environmentally aware and did better on their science curriculum, mm. um, but they were willing to try and actually did consume uh, more fruits and vegetables, fruits and vegetables beyond what was grown in their little school garden. Uh -huh. So it was a really important entree point. And that was an early on piece of literature and the peer-reviewed literature, and there's been much more since then. So um, I think a lot of these interventions are gaining traction and hopefully uh, will carry on regardless of what uh, Melania Trump chooses as her signature issue. I don't think any of us, well, she's already said it's going to be social media, uh, but if it had been Bill and Hillary Clinton, I don't think you expect the the incoming spouse to take over the agenda of their predecessor. That, that just doesn't happen. Mm. Um, that's not saying that anything was um, bad about let's move or, um, or anything like that. It's just, you know, new team, new game. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of work ahead. The Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act uh, comes up for passage every five years. Right. It's, um, it's time to reauthorize it. They were hoping to get some agreement in this lame duck Congress. They were unable to do so. But um, that might be on the agenda in the next year or two. And that's important because that uh, makes a lot of um, decisions about what your children get in school lunch. Right. Why do you think that there is gridlock over an issue that to me should be so bipartisan, which is the health of the of the nation's children. Why why are these guys unable to come to an agreement about providing a healthy, nutritious school lunch? What is that? Well, there are a lot of interest groups involved in that. <laughs> yeah, that's um, what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah, so I sing did, on. <laughs> <laughs> I rem but it's not all the people that you might think and. So I learned this back in you know, the year 2000 when I was an agency administrator at USDA, and my responsibility, I, one of my responsibilities was to procure most of the food for the school lunch program that mm -hmm. the federal government buys. And I decided to increase the food safety requirements for um, ground beef. Uh, I was concerned that people who are older on the show might remember that there were some deaths that occurred um, in a, a chain called Jack in the Box. It was a fast food chain. Oh, yeah. I uh, love that story. Eating hamburger, E. coli, deaths. It was bad. Mm -hmm. And so I was increasing the um, requirements around E. coli testing and, and procedures and all of that. Now, um, by adding those different requirements, though, that required the industry that produced the beef to for the school lunch to do additional things that cost money. So the hamburger cost more money. And what I didn't anticipate at the time, and I'd like to believe I'm a little more sophisticated now, but still 
somewhat counterintuitive, um, the pushback I got was actually from the school lunch people, mm-hmm. you know, the women in the cafeteria, so to speak. And I thought, why? Why wouldn't you want to have the safest hamburger possible? But from their point of view, hamburger was about the most popular lunch item on the menu, and um, they figured because it would have a higher price point, they wouldn't be able to buy as much of it. And mm-hmm. so um, kids wouldn't be eating as much of a nutritious lunch as a result because they wouldn't, they wouldn't dive in and eat all, gobble up everything that would be the alternative. Hmm. So there are various motivations. It's not all just about people's bottom lines and corporate interests. There, um, there are different perspectives at play. I think um, uh, the other big challenge, too, is there is really uneven ability across the country to deliver on some of the nutrition goals that we all have because, for the most part, we've abandoned school kitchens. They're not part of a school anymore. They're not a part of my children's school, never have been from elementary school through high school. Mm. And so they're in a heat-and-serve kind of operation that favors packaged food and more processed food. Uh, it's not the olden days when I went to school. There was a scratch kitchen, and um, there's still <laughs> some of that in the yeah. South, and some people are trying to bring it back into the school, but it's difficult. So we, there's a lot of things at play. Not, yeah. There's not just one, one simple culprit or one sort of thing we fixed, and it would all fall in place, unfortunately. That is unfortunate, Dr. Merrigan. It's really sad. Because I would love to blame Congress for everything, because I think they've just been so... I think this the last you know eight years of Congress has just been completely delinquent in their responsibilities towards the national interest. And you know anything I can do to blame those buggers, I'm happy to do that. Now, you are also part of... I'm going to move on, though, because we have so much other stuff to talk about. Um, you are part of something called... Called Agri, a capital A G R E E, um, and I remember. I don't know if you heard my. You didn't hear my intro, but I interviewed Gary Hirschberg way back when the organization was first started. I don't think you were even part of it at that point, um, but you may have been. But you wrote a funny, an interesting blog about um, urban agriculture and the upcoming farm bill. And I did a lot of programming around urban agriculture when I first started doing this show. And, you know, because New York has been quite a hotbed of of, um, of urban ag. We have several quite successful um, rooftop farming events going on here or, you know, uh, entities going on here. So what, what are your expectations for urban agriculture going forward into the 21st century. I mean, I see it as kind of, you know, kind of an interesting experiment, but not something that's really necessarily going to uh, provide actual quantities of food that would be necessary for urban living. But you you obviously know better. So tell us, does urban agriculture has the, have the potential to make a significant contribution to our food production overall? I don't think so. Um, I think that... Um even in cities where there's large available land space for production, like Detroit, Michigan, uh-huh. we're really only talking, um, you know, I don't remember what it is. Maybe it's 30 acres. I can't remember what it is. But 
it's not really, there's nowhere where urban agriculture is being practiced in a way that it would feed the city, um, even on the short term. But what I'm really interested in is urban agriculture is more than just about producing food. Mm-hmm. It's about reconnecting people with um, food production. It's about um, building community. A lot of times it's also about environmental, um, social justice issues, the different people who are involved, and food access. So um, it's introducing produce in large, uh, large ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, as we are um, very much urbanizing globally, and, and also in the United States, surely more and more people are moving to the city, we do want to figure out how we can make sure that our cities are producing food at some quantity, mm-hmm. and also the peri-urban areas around the city. But I don't see a time when we won't need rural areas to produce the the vast majority of our food. Right, right. Um, so, you know, we had a really great symposium here at GW on, uh, on urban agriculture. We had some people from New York, and all of the video from those proceedings are on our website, which is foodinstitute.gwu.edu, and you just go under the annual symposium, and the, you don't have to go from beginning to the end. You can go onto people's names and hit what their content was. Uh-huh. For people interested in urban agriculture, it's a really great resource. There was a uh, bill introduced by Debbie Sabineau, the senator from Michigan, yeah. uh, the ranking member of the Senate Ag Committee, uh, the day before our symposium, <coughs> as a conversation starter on urban agriculture in preparation for the 2018 Farm Bill. And I believe Marcy Kaptur, the congresswoman from Ohio, is also introducing legislation when the new Congress starts. So there are a lot of people who are excited, I being one of them, that urban agriculture will have its day in the sun finally uh, as a part of the Farm Bill. Right, right. What do you think about, you know, the Farm Bill and the sort of the whole sort of structure of agriculture in this country has a lot of injustices, as I'm sure you are aware. Um, And one of them is uh, the way we uh, the way we pay our food workers, for example, um, and some of the problems with immigration reform that haven't happened and should happen. Um, and I'm wondering if you think that if an urban agricultural model sort of takes off, do you think that that would uh, address some of the injustices that are endemic to the food system now in terms of labor and immigration and you know wages, benefits, et cetera? Um, would would that be almost a model for a new kind of or a new agricultural system in a funny way? Do you, am I making sense here? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, if agricultural, if if urban agricultural takes urban agriculture takes off, there's a there's a new model because obviously you can't pay people nothing and withhold wages or benefits the way we do with our big farms now, um, or in the meat industry. And so I'm wondering if there's, like, the potential for really making a sea change in how we do agriculture in this country through using urban ag as a model. I hope that makes sense. Well, again, I don't think that urban ag is going to deliver the kind of quantities of food that we need. No. In some ways, you're right. It's a fresh slate, so it can be built up in all different ways. But 
you can't ignore the issues in the rural countryside. And to that, I will say that um, <clears throat> agriculture, really, when I started as deputy secretary at the beginning of 2009, agriculture as a sector was ready for immigration reform. Um, they uh, were clamoring for it, and particularly in California, farm workers and um, uh, major farm owners, um, industry groups had come together at the table and promoted this legislation called Ag Jobs. Mm. In the Obama administration, even though agriculture was ready to rock and roll on immigration reform, the decision was not to let ag go on its own, but we really needed the whole kitten caboodle, mm -hmm. if you will. The agriculture wasn't the only industry struggling um, and dependent on undocumented workers, although one might argue when you put in um, food service workers and Absolutely. restaurants and all of that, it may be the most dominant. But they said, wait, and we've not seen any appetite in Congress for really resolving this issue. It's hurting our agriculture industry terribly. It's hurting families. It's hurting um, in so many different ways. And we are losing business to other countries because uh, industry leaders are saying, I cannot be assured that there is a labor force there to produce this food or to process this food, so I'm going to build my factory or I'm going to set up my production elsewhere. So it's, it's really at crisis proportions. I don't think urban agriculture can solve that, but maybe no. by having more urban agriculture um, and people think more deeply as a result of their connections through urban agriculture with what's going on in food production, it will... Um, it will help make sure that immigration reform is high on the political agenda. That's one of the issues that we've been talking about at AGREE. You had mentioned that yeah. organization I'm a co-chair of. I took Gary Hirschberg's uh, spot when he, um, when he uh, decided to change out at, on AGREE to take up another opportunity. Um, and, uh, and we feel very, very strongly that for food and agriculture to thrive in the U.S., we can't wait any longer on this. This is, this is again, it's crisis proportions. Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, I that's why I'm asking about it, because I feel like, uh, you know, my personal belief, being a conspiracy theorist, you know, a lefty uh, conspiracy theorist, um, I think that the reason we haven't had any real movement forward, as you pointed out, is because food industries are dependent upon the lowest possible wage and no benefits for meatpacking workers, for pickers, for restaurant workers, you know, all up and down the food chain. And I think it has been in the interest of corporations to, um, as you say, yes, you know, there's some uncertainty in terms of whether or not they're going to be able to marshal the labor force, but at the same time, keeping an undocumented worker force uh, as your labor means that you can pay the lowest amount of money and you don't have to give them any benefits. And that's been proven over and over again. So that's uh, that's my theory about why immigration reform hasn't happened and why it's going to be very hard to pass something meaningful in the coming in. Because if they do what Mr. Trump is suggesting, deport all these workers, the entire food industry will collapse from farm to table. I mean, 
without undocumented workers. There's nobody there to slaughter. There's nobody there to process. There's nobody there to pick. You know, it's just, it's a disaster. But unfortunately, we are running out of time. So I want to ask you a question. How do you visualize American agriculture evolving to meet the challenges of climate change and water shortages? Yeah, well, there's a good one. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we already know that um, based on some new mapping, crop zone maps that USDA has produced, that ultimately we'll see some shifting of um, regions of where things can be grown. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, based on the changing climate. I um, I think that um, we need to go back at that issue of dietary guidance and sustainability, which was a hot issue a couple of years ago. You know, that's that food plate in the pyramid and all that. What are we advising Americans to eat? I think it's time that we advise Americans on what to eat, not just based on health, but health for um, the planet as well, not just human health. So uh, the Congress really intervened and stopped that from happening a couple of years ago. Yes. Uh, The next dietary guidelines will come out in 2020. Um, The only country that's really, really gone deep in that in terms of dietary recommendations is the Netherlands. Right. where they have put a very specific recommendation on how much meat should people eat. Uh, they say no more than um, 500 grams a week, of which the lower, the, the lesser amount is red meat, for health and sustainability reasons. So I think that you know that's where we um, need to go for climate change because. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, because you know, we can't where, grow where enough I crops, we have no choice. Right. I mean, the 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 data is pretty compelling about what's happening to our planet, and we need to move quickly. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's bad news. for That sounds like bad news for a farmer or a rancher. I've got to change my everything and, right. oh, just I'm feeling put upon. On the other hand, I think there's a really great opportunity for particularly rural areas, um, well, urban areas too, but the renewable energy thing is just booming Mm-hmm. You know, there are tens of thousands of farmers that are uh, um, hosting solar panels and wind turbines on their land and putting power into the regional grid. And we have just um, tapped the surface of that. Um, so there's a lot of stuff we can do. Uh, I think there's a lot of interest in going back to bio-based products and getting ourselves off of fossil fuel-based products. Right. And um, and the ag sector is a huge part of that. So both challenges and opportunities. Yes. I, I, yeah, indeed there are. Well, I, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up there but because um, I had obviously many more questions, as you know, but I think we did pretty well today. Um, is there anything you want to promote? Because this is your moment to promote shamelessly anything that you want for people to take a look at or read about or otherwise know. So there's your conference in April. Um, what other stuff should they be looking at? Well, you know, here's my personal plea. I went to the grocery store um, on Thanksgiving. I'm having a lot of people over for a nice dinner. And I was able to buy locally grown flowers. So this is what I'm thinking about listening to President-elect Trump and 
this Make America Great Again, um, Buy American. Uh, there's a lot of concern about trade deals. When we pass the, and I'm a pro-trade person, I will tell you that. Okay. But when we passed the Columbia trade uh, deal some years ago, it decimated our American uh, cut flower industry. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that we need to bring back a sensibility, not just about our food and what's local and seasonable and sustainable, but also about our flowers. So as we are approaching the holiday season, I'm saying to all the shoppers out there, all the flower lovers, think about buying um, local flowers. Oftentimes they, they're a slightly different bouquet, um, but uh, it's a really great um, industry that we're trying to rebuild. Okay. Good to know. Well, <laughs> really, I mean, I'll think about that. I don't think about where I buy my flowers or where they're coming from. And you're, you know, you're absolutely right. And one does see more and more sort of the fair trade flower and all that kind of stuff. But we should be looking for grown in the USA or grown in New York State or grown in Western Mass, whatever. Anyway, Dr. Merrigan, I hope you'll come back because, um, like I said, we barely plumbed your depths. Um, but this is a great way to end my season. This is my last season for 2016. And Ah, well, saints preserve all of us in the coming uh, weeks and months. Um, I'm I'm hoping I'll see you. Maybe I'll be down in D.C. for the Women's March in January. I bet you'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> January 21st. That's right. Um, but all I'm, right. <laughs> Take care. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks so much to New York uh, State Grown and Certified for sponsoring this program, as they do. And thanks to my engineer. And uh, have a happy, healthy, wonderful set of holidays, whichever ones you celebrate. And I will be uh, back with new programming come January. And um, I wish you the best until then. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks so much for supporting the station. Remember, we're still in our fun drive. So if you haven't hit the donate button, today is a perfect re- reason to do it. Kathleen Merrigan, come on. How many times do you get to listen to the Undersecretary of Agriculture anywhere else? I ask you folks. Until then, arrivederci and have a happy new year. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.